0: Psalm 73, you'll notice the Hebrew letter Yod there, or Jod, as it appears to read in English. Could I point out to you what uh, I'm sure I do anytime I'm in the 119th Psalm is that you not only find these eight-verse sections throughout the psalm, but if you were able to view these verses in their original language, you would note that Every verse in this section, Jod, begins with the letter Jod, or Yod. So it is really something of a literary masterpiece, as well as God's inspired word. And as I uh, point out, I think each time too, that with the exception of one verse, this entire psalm, all verses in it, all 176 verses in it, are prayed to God. Following about a a three-verse prelude, so to speak, the entire psalm, with one exception, the exception of one verse, everything is addressed to God. So this is a prayer. And you'll notice this right off the get-go. Verse 73, you'll see that the psalmist is talking to the Lord. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding, that I may learn thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness hast afflicted me. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without a cause. But I will meditate in thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me and those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes, that I be not ashamed. Amen. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. This is a psalm, the entire psalm, about God's word, God's law, God's statutes, God's ordinances. If you want to formulate for yourself um, a a solid doctrine that we could call the doctrine of Scripture. Certainly the 119th Psalm is a portion of God's Word that you will want to uh, devote yourself to to understand just what God's Word is. And something that you do well to pay close attention to throughout this psalm is, what is the psalmist's attitude towards God's law? And you discover throughout the psalm that he loves it. He loves God's law. He loves God's commandments. And my, doesn't that stand in stark contrast to the kind of attitude that unfortunately can be found even in the lives of many Christians who dread God's law? And think of it as something that is uh, oppressive, and demeaning and robs us of joy and pleasure. Oh, the mark of a saved man, the mark of a regenerate man is an attitude, a good and positive attitude and affection toward the law of God. May God grant it to us all. Now, I want to call your attention to one portion of one verse Uh, for just a few moments this afternoon. Verse 74, notice what the psalmist writes. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me. I wonder this afternoon, how do others respond to you when you walk into the room? Do they notice you? Do you hope that you go unnoticed? Some people have a naturally shy disposition and prefer to keep a low profile. There's something actually Christ-like in that, insofar as Christ was never a deliberate attention seeker. One of the things prophesied about Christ, we saw this this morning from Isaiah 53, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. Christ was not one that would naturally stand out in a a crowd, and he was not one who would deliberately draw attention to himself. When he performed miracles, oftentimes his word was, don't tell anyone, which always proved to be impossible for the recipient of that miracle. He couldn't help but tell everyone. But that wasn't because Christ put him up to it. Some people like to be seen. Many of the Pharisees in Christ's time were like that. It's a topic that Christ addresses in the Sermon on the Mount. So in Matthew 6, we read of those that love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Matthew 6 and verse 5. He further describes them later in Matthew chapter 23 as those that make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Some people, it seems, love to stand out and will go so far as to flaunt phony piety in order to do so. And Christ's remark about people like that is that they've received their reward. Whatever reward you can gain through the misimpression you create by flaunting your phony piety, that's the extent of your reward. A wrong response to such hypocrisy would be to avoid anything spiritual for fear of thinking that all you're doing is flaunting your, your piety. And I have heard some people actually speak against the midweek prayer meeting along those lines. Oh, you're just praying to be heard of men. Well, if that is the case, plead the blood over your prayers, but keep praying regardless. Because we do need to pray. And in fact, the very opening words to the Lord's Prayer teach us, I think, very clearly uh, the sanction for corporate prayer when we are taught to pray our Father which art in heaven. Doesn't that presuppose then uh, a corporate gathering in which the one who is praying that way is including himself and everyone around him? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now I think the psalmist in this section of Psalm 119 has struck a good balance. The psalmist in this section of the psalm expresses a desire to be seen of men, but his desire was not a desire to flaunt a phony spirituality that would only cater to his pride. He had a desire, rather, to be a blessing to others. Listen to the words again of verse 74. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me. Oh, that is something indeed good and, uh, and rich and wonderful to be emulated. And notice also that, and, and this is typical in the 119th Psalm, this is a statement of resolution. And you see throughout the psalm that there are many such statements of resolution. I haven't done it in this Bible that I have before me now, but in one of my other Bibles I used to write in the margin uh, the letter R next to verses of resolution. Try it sometime. Mark those verses and you'll discover that there are many of them, and, and they run in kind of a parallel fashion to verses in which the psalmist expresses dependence. So add a D to the, in the margin to the verses that speak of dependence, and you'll discover you have a lot of Ds and a lot of Rs in your margin next to the 119th Psalm, because the psalmist did recognize his dependence upon God But the thing that we have to keep ever in mind, and especially is this true for those of us that are Reformed, for those of us that are Calvinistic, we must always take note of the fact that our dependence upon God does not evaporate resolution in our hearts to follow after God. In obedience to his word. There are some that would treat it that way. What is the point of resolution if God is sovereign and everything depends on him? Well, call to mind what Paul writes to the Philippians It is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What is the evidence of God? by His Spirit, working in your heart. It is just this. Your resolution is going to be strengthened, not weakened. He works in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. But now, so in the instance of our text, it's as if the psalmist is saying to the Lord, Lord, I am resolved that they that fear Thee will be glad when they see me. And the resolution is expressed as a prayer in verse 79, Let those that fear thee turn unto me, and those that have known thy testimonies. So the psalmist wanted others to turn to him, and he wanted to be a blessing to them, and he wanted to have a positive impact on their lives in such a way that he would make them glad. You could say that this positive statement in verse 74 finds a negative counterpart in an earlier psalm, Psalm 69 in verse 6, where the psalmist says, "'Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, "'be ashamed for my sake. "'Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, "'O God of Israel.'" Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. Oh, Lord, don't let me have a negative impact on others. Don't let me be a stumbling block to others because of anything in my life. In this instance, David did not want his own reproach to become an occasion for others to become ashamed of the Lord. He evidently felt a sense of dread in causing others to be pulled down from the Lord. I think the Apostle Paul, you might argue, felt something of the same thing when he would write to Timothy and and exhort him, Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Just because I've been arrested and I'm committed to prison, don't you be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord because of the reproach that's come upon me. Oh, that such a sense of dread might be keenly felt among Christians today. Lord, don't let me make others ashamed of thee. But on the contrary, let those that fear thy name be glad when I come into their uh, their presence. So taking the two statements together, Psalm 69, Psalm 119, we could say that the psalmist didn't want others to be hindered by him. He did not want them to become ashamed of the Lord because of him. Instead, he desired that those that feared the Lord would be glad upon seeing him. Simply put, these verses express the desire to have a positive impact rather than a negative impact upon other Christians. So I want to focus today for a few moments on the positive impact that the Christian should have on others, we should make these words in verse 74 our resolution. I know we're a little bit beyond New Year's resolutions, okay, but we don't have to restrict ourselves to resolutions only on the beginning of the year. Let this be our resolution They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. So I'd like you to consider the theme this afternoon, then, of making others glad. How can we make others glad? The question I want to endeavor to answer here this afternoon. First of all, if we're going to make others glad, we must target the right people. We must target the right people. Note from the words of our text, That it is a particular people that the psalmist resolves will be glad when they see him. They that fear thee, he says, will be glad when they see me. And again, verse 79, let those that fear thee turn unto me. Here then are the kinds of people that ought to be targeted by the Christian. Let me be a source of encouragement to those that fear the Lord. Let me make glad those that fear the Lord. These are the kinds of people you should desire to be with. And it is unfortunately not as common a phenomenon as you would hope for and expect in many Christian circles today. You've heard me say on numerous occasions that godly fear means reverence or respect. Reverential awe is a common phrase that theologians, preachers, commentators use to describe the fear of the Lord. It doesn't simply mean that we're to be afraid of God when we use that phrase. But neither do we deny that there is an element of fear or fright that leads to godly fear. Whenever I think on this subject, my mind is drawn to Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And this is something else you've heard me say on numerous occasions. When you're reading the Ten Commandments, don't ever lose sight of the setting in which they're given. We read in Exodus 19, beginning in verse 10. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. There shall not in hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. Do you notice in these instructions that Moses was conveyed to the people, that there was nothing casual in any of those instructions. This was not a relax and come as you are event. It was a fearful event. God Almighty, who is glorious in holiness, was going to draw near and make his voice heard. We read a few verses later, verse 16 In Exodus 19. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud, so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and the smoke thereof ascended uh, as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. Oh, try to get a picture of that in your mind. Here is a mountain on fire. Here is a mountain shaking like a leaf in the wind. And you know the story. The Lord descended upon Mount Sinai. The people heard the Lord's own voice as he set before them the Ten Commandments. Later, Moses would recount that event to the children of Israel, and he would remind them of what took place immediately following such a revelation of God's glory. So we read in Deuteronomy 5, in verse 23... And it came to pass, this is Moses speaking now, he is being retrospective here. He's calling to their remembrance what they experienced. It came to pass when ye heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, where the mountain did burn with fire, that ye came near unto me, even all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us his glory. And his greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire, we have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and he liveth. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that hath heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and lived? Go thou near, and hear all that the Lord our God shall say, and speak thou unto us all that the Lord our God shall speak unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And Moses goes on to say, And the Lord heard the voice of your words when ye spake unto me. And the Lord said unto me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken unto thee. They have well said all that they have spoken. Oh, this is a rare instance in which God is actually commending the Israelites for their wisdom in recognizing, uh, you're right, you cannot endure my glory. I am altogether holy. You are altogether sinful. You cannot endure the glory of God. And when you look at that passage, and I preached on it before under uh, the theme of the Israelites' cry for a mediator. That's what they were calling for, for Moses to be the mediator, the go-between. You go and hear from God. You bring to us what he says to you, because then could they endure it? That's where godly fear begins. And where you find carefree and casual worship that at times amounts to little more than worldly entertainment with a religious tint cast over it, I'm afraid that you don't find the kind of reverence that is exemplified by that passage in Exodus. Those that fear the Lord reverence the Lord. They find themselves compelled to bow before Christ in deep and solemn humility, which then leads to praise and thanksgiving when you consider that God Almighty, who is glorious in holiness, has accepted us into his presence on account of Christ's atoning death. But we do have access to him, to one even as glorious as this. Who then do we target as those that we want to make glad? We target those that reverence Christ. Those that have humble respect toward him. And could I say here, since I'm on the topic now of the fear of the Lord that we have in the Psalms and in Proverbs uh, three instances, at least, in which we are told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the holy is understanding. Which means then that if, if you are lacking in this godly fear, you have not begun to know the fear of the Lord. This is the beginning point. The beginning of the race, you could say. What kind of a race can you enter in which you never even approach the starting line? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We target those then that take holiness seriously. We target those that are genuinely humble, who do justice and love mercy. These are the ones that I want to make glad when I come into their presence because I want to be like them. There's another category or kind of people that are found in this section of the psalm. Notice the words of verse 78. Let the proud be ashamed, for they dealt perversely with me without cause. You can almost hear Christ himself echoing those words, can't you? The contrast couldn't be greater between this category of people and those that fear the Lord. The proud are arrogant. The proud think that the world should revolve around them. It's interesting, isn't it, to note how the psalmist affirms in the very first verse of this section that God is the creator. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. The proud make no such acknowledgment of God. Their dealings are perverse. The word perversely means to be bent, to be crooked, or to bend or make crooked, to pervert. They twist and they distort God's ways, and where they succeed, you find sin being sanctioned and virtue being banned. Have I not just described the culture of our nation? The thing, then, that a Christian must ever keep in mind, and this is so true for young people, as well as elderly, when you target the kind of people that you would make glad, you cannot choose to make glad both categories of people that I've just described. It will either be those that fear the Lord that you make glad, or those that are proud and deal perversely that you make glad. You you cannot make them both glad if you're walking as a Christian. You have to choose between them. Sinners are glad to have you. They're especially glad to pull Christians into sin. Listen to the words of Proverbs 1. Take them as the very words of a heavenly father to his children when you hear, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not." If they say, come with us, let us lay wait for blood. Let us lurk privily for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and whole as those that go down into the pit. We shall find all precious substance. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, walk not thou in the way with them. Refrain thy foot from their path, for their feet run to evil and make haste to shed blood. Don't go with them. Don't go in their direction. I can remember years ago that one of my seminary professors, Reverend John Douglas, he was here from Northern Ireland, and he was exhorting us, he was telling us of his family devotions in which he would set one child at a time on his knee and he would basically cite these verses from Proverbs to them my son of sinners entice thee go thou not refrain thy foot from their path for their foot run to evil and make haste to shed blood don't go that way don't go in that direction it is out there It's everywhere in the world. The older you get, the more exposed to it you'll become. Don't go in that direction. Oh, may the Lord help us then to target the ones we would make glad by our presence. But it's not enough simply to target the right people. Consider with me next, therefore, if we would make others glad, we must equip ourselves To be a blessing to others, we must equip ourselves. In the words of our text, a specific reason is given as to why those that fear God become glad. They that fear Thee will be glad when they see Me, because, here's the reason, I have hoped in Thy Word. Here's the contributing factor then to making others glad they're able to perceive faith. Hope and faith are essentially the same. We think of hope as that aspect of faith which anticipates the future blessings of salvation. Paul, before King Agrippa, would testify in Acts chapter 26 and verse 6. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. And the hope that Paul has in view in that instance is the hope of the Messiah. The very existence of the Jews was on account of that hope. They existed in order for the Messiah to come through them. For thousands of years, such a hope was the source of their spiritual vitality. Here is an example of hope being realized, for the Messiah has come. Our hope today is in accordance with everything that was accomplished by Christ's first coming and in everything that is anticipated in connection with his second coming. So Paul writes in Romans 5 and verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We are anticipating things to come. We are anticipating that on that judgment day, and I'm referring now to one of my Favorite Shorter Catechism questions, question 38, that asks the question, what benefits do believers receive uh, at the resurrection? And here is our hope. At the resurrection, believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God forever. Oh, my, to read it is to long for it. To read it is to hope for it. We hope to be owned by God on that day. We hope to be acknowledged and acquitted. And our hope, obviously, is not because this will be something that we have earned, but it will be something that Christ has won for us by his life and by his death. So we anticipate the glory of God. We look forward ultimately To the glory of God. We suspect that in the end, it will be the cause of Christ that prevails in this sin cursed world. And by the way, don't ever lose sight of that when you find yourself being so overwhelmed by all the gloom and doom that is in the world today. And I'm not saying don't be oblivious to what's going on, but don't let your heart be dominated by it either, because in fact, Christ's kingdom. Is what prevails in the end. We rejoice to know that every knee will bow to Christ, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every Muslim leader, every Muslim follower, Muhammad himself, every follower and leader in every false cult and religion, they will all bow the knee to Jesus Christ and confess that he is Lord of all. This hope is further brought out by Paul in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 5, where he writes, For we, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Here is an aspect of our justification that looks ahead. We generally think of our justification as a present benefit, and indeed it is a present benefit, but there is also a future benefit aspect to it. And that future aspect is described in that Shorter Catechism answer that I read to you just a moment ago about being openly acknowledged and acquitted in the day of judgment. There's the future aspect of our justification. Doesn't the thought of it fill and thrill your soul? On that day when sin will be revealed, when the secrets of men's hearts will be openly manifested, and all men from the least to the greatest will give account of themselves before God on that fearful day, that deep-down dread of the world, you will find yourself instead openly acknowledged and acquitted. I love how Paul expresses this hope in Philippians 3, in verse 8, where he says, That's what I anticipate and expect. This is what it means to hope in God's word then, to hope for the glory of God, to hope for the righteousness which is of God by faith, the hope of the gospel, it's called in Colossians 1.23, the hope of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5, eight, the hope of eternal life, Titus 1 and verse 2. Now let me focus for a moment on a very practical aspect of these gospel blessings. Our text says, They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. We've seen a little bit about what that hope encompasses. The challenge that the text presents to us is this. When others see you, can they tell that the hope of God's word is the controlling factor of your life? Can they tell, in other words, that your life is dominated by the expectation that the glory of God will prevail? To see and hear some Christians, you know, you would think that all is lost and the devil is one. There are those that are dominated so much by all the terrible and sinful things going on in the world today that there's no way you could say of them that their presence makes others glad. On the contrary, their presence seems to pull others down to the same level of despair and discouragement that they find themselves. They're so downcast and pessimistic that you would avoid them if you could do it without being blatantly rude. It seems that all they can talk about is how awful the situation in our world is. There's the legally sanctioned sins of sodomy and abortion and the woke mentality. There's our woeful economic situations which, by their account, will only get worse There's the political realm, the pathetic realm of politics that leads you to put your hope in a candidate only to discover eventually that he's pretty much like the rest of the politicians in our nation's capital. There are constant conspiracies taking place that are only going to lead to the further oppression of Christians and the sanctioning of sin. I have known people One particular person comes to my mind. I won't name any names. Some of you might remember this person if I were to name a name. This person seemed to find some kind of perverse pleasure in discovering conspiracy themes by which she could frighten herself. Oh, my. Um, And that makes others glad? Are those the things that Dominate your heart this afternoon? And again, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not suggesting that as Christians we somehow inoculate ourselves from what's going on around us by trying to live like ostriches with our heads stuck in the sand, so to speak. Nor am I suggesting that we try, as some Christians try, to adopt a form of monasticism that compels us to build invisible walls around ourselves that would shut everything out and shut ourselves in. When you think about it, what could be more dreadful than being shut in with yourself? I'm only asking now whether or not the sinful condition of the world dominates your heart, or the hope of God's word dominates your heart. If it's the condition of the world, it's small wonder that your presence would fail to make others glad. The problem at the end of the day for people I've been describing is that they're governed more by sight than they are by faith. You're assigning a reality to things you see that has become a more ultimate reality than the way things really are. And you've assigned to the realm of spiritual truths a sort of ambiguity that practically reduces your faith to a belief in cunningly devised fables. You're being dominated by a mindset that has things completely turned around. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 18 that the things which are seen are temporal, but there are those that treat them as if there was some kind of eternal ultimacy to them. But the things that are not seen are eternal, Paul goes on to write, but you may be treating them as if they were so distant as to make them questionable. Or barely true at all. If you would rise to the challenge of the text, therefore, and make those that fear the Lord glad by your presence, then it must be the truth of God's word that comes to dominate your heart. Look at what the psalmist says, verse 76. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to thy word unto thy servant. Let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live, for thy law is my delight. Focus especially on those words, let thy tender mercies come unto me, that I may live. Is this not tantamount to praying, O Lord, let the grace and mercy and love of Christ, who gave himself for me, be the dominating power by which I live. Let my life be controlled by thy mercy. Let my heart be filled and thrilled with the truth that nothing shall ever separate me from the love of Christ. Let me rise above the mire and muck of this world by appropriating to myself abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. And oh, if we will master what I only know to call the ministry of the gospel to your own soul, then you will be equipped to make others glad. May the Lord help us then to recognize the things that can hamper us from this endeavor, and may we come to recognize and appropriate the things that can equip us, which is to keep our minds and hearts stayed on Christ, and if you'll do it, if you will uh, adopt the resolution of the psalmist, then you will indeed be the better equipped for making others glad because you yourself will be made glad by the joy of salvation. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee that we can be glad in Christ. O Lord, we are most glad when we consider what thou hast done for us and what thou hast wrought in us by thy Spirit. We are glad, O Lord, to know that our sins are forgiven, that heaven is our home, that we're clothed in thy righteousness, that we're adopted into thy family. O Lord, we pray that these would be precious truths that we not only give assent to in our minds, but that we wholeheartedly appropriate to our souls. And so may we be the better equipped to make others glad. And Lord, grant that we will target the right folks for this. Lead us, O Lord, to those that have a genuine fear of Thee, And may we be a blessing to them. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.